Hi folks, Andy the Taxman here. Before we get into today's program, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Grappling with Canada on any podcasting platform of your choice. The great Antonio is this guy, I, I can't even describe what he looks like. He looks like a fucking troll with a page boy haircut, and he's just ridiculously fat, and he's wearing the ugliest mustard-colored yellow, like, sweatpants with these military boots on. Um... He's uh, wrestling this guy, Antonio Anaki, who's a Japanese guy who looks like a movie star. You know, he's got the old school movie star chin. He's got the Jack Lord Hawaii 5-0 haircut. He's in great shape. So they start wrestling. The Japanese guy is, is being a professional. And the great Antonio, who I guess had a reputation for not selling people's moves and being selfish in the ring, you know, the Japanese guy would punch him in his fat stomach and he wouldn't even move. And then the, f- the fat dude would keep like punching his stomach like it's hard as a rock. And people were laughing in the crowd. Guy, like the Japanese guy throws him off the ropes. And the guy just sort of stops. You know, and doesn't sell the f- move. And the Japanese guy's looking at him like, what the? F-? And the crowd's laughing. You start seeing the Japanese dude looking at him like, dude, what the? F-? So long story short, they get a few minutes into the round. The Japanese guy has been selling everything the fat's doing. The fat's making the Japanese guy look like an idiot. So fat gets the Japanese guy against the ropes, and he's punching almost like the back of this guy's neck. Super fucking hard. And the guy takes like three of them before he finally like blocks the fourth one. And then he just snaps like, dude, what? Like, And he just stands up and just open hands, slaps this fat in the head as hard as you possibly can. And the fat page boy guy like turns his head. It's been phenomenal. And the Japanese guy's going like going making those like, come on, let's can fight. Then grabs his leg. Japanese dude just snaps. Just throws him on his belly, boots him in the fucking head. Right now the ref is going like, whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. <laughs> so they're crawling around like a dog. And the Japanese guy boots him in the head again. Now the fat guy is like in planking. He's laying down on the ground and the Japanese guy boots him in the head like another fucking six times. It's almost attempted murder. I'm Andy the Taxman. This is Grappling with Canada. Underground, on the orange line, there is a disturbing giant, disturbing. It's a strange pachyderm. When he gets up, the earth shakes. He carries on his back the weight of his legend. Underground, Bomia Station. People pretend it's nothing. Act as if they don't see. That a wreck is washed ashore there. Tied to the past by its heavy braids. Oh, what sadness. The great Antonio. Antonio Beresevich. Beresevich Fatissimo as 10 star horses from Tokyo to Gatineau. Want my photo? Give me some donut.
On earth it's been years. We saw him on TV in much happier days. He excited the curious, pulling buses with his hair. But the man stronger on earth sunk down in misery. The day when his little flower broke his too big of a heart, saying to him, I'll leave you. Oh, what a pain for a wrestler, the great Antonio, Antonio Beresavich, Beresavich Fortissimo, like ten horses. Star from Tokyo to Gatineau. A heartbreak even heavier than the sum of all his records. It's far too much effort. Antonio suffered so much that his monumental strength in the end only became a postcard memory. Sad final, sad final. Coming out of a grocery store, that's where he ended his life. Away on a small bench, not to disturb the customers, nobody to realize that he was long dead. Poor little giant. Leaving for the long journey, without honors and without luggage, what a pity. But in the living room, in spite of death, he raised the crowd again, 3,000 people at arm's length, one last time. Ah, what a feat, to reach fame, too often alone and despised it, it was expensive to pay. Hail to you, Antonio, half tramp, half hero, forever larger than life, that's for sure. Legends die hard. What I've just read to you are the lyrics from the song Antonio by the band Maya, released several years after the great Antonio's passing. Lyrics which encapsulates the wonderful story and the tragedy of the story of the man that they call the great Antonio. Now, today's episode is on one of the more fascinating subjects that I've covered on Grappling with Canada, and easily the hardest to research. There is a long, deep history and appreciation for the strongman story out of Montreal, out of French Canada, that's both impressively told and impressively difficult to separate fact from fiction. Today, in this episode of Grappling with Canada, we're going to be taking a look at the story of the great Antonio. We're going to be celebrating the fact, his accomplishments, his Guinness World Records, and his feats of strength, and the fiction, the exaggerated feats, the exaggerated sense of self, but more importantly, the exaggeration of the story. Today is going to be a fascinating look at both the life of a wrestler, but the life of a legend. And I think you'll understand a lot more of what I mean by that as we progress into today's episode. It's going to be an episode quite different from any that I've ever covered on Grappling with Canada. Normally, I would start the episode by giving a brief biography of the individual. Today, you're going to get a biography that this individual has told. And later in the program, we're going to uncover with as much fact that I'm able to back up of the real story. Who was Antonio Beresavich, and how can we separate him from the great Antonio? We're going to find out later in today's episode. I have two wonderful guests who will be joining me on today's program. We're going to be getting to all of that a little bit later. But I think the proper way to start this off 
is to start at the end. Now, this uh, audio clip that you're going to hear comes from the CBC. It is the clip from CBC's The National, in which you're going to hear uh, the great Peter Mansbridge describe the passing of the great Antonio. And on the other side, let's start with the legend of Le Grand Antonio. Well, he was a man who could pull his own weight, and a lot more than that. Montreal is mourning the loss of a huge presence, a strong man who was known as the great Antonio. Matthew Pace reports. They came to see a giant with a gentle heart, a strong man who could sing a lullaby. He loved the world, says this man. He loved life. You judge a man by his heart, his character, and he had a great character. He was a character right out of a myth. As with all myths, the facts, well, they don't really matter. His name was Anton Berachevich. Sometimes he said he was born in Yugoslavia, other times Italy. He said he came to Canada sometime in the 1940s, that he was the world's strongest man. This much is true. He was strong. The great Antonio stood six foot four, weighed more than 400 pounds. He could wrestle five men, pull a train or a bus. He pulled four of them into the Guinness Book of World Records. He appeared on television and in movies, but he ended up a poor man. The great Antonio died of a heart attack just before his 78th birthday. There's so many different stories. Some people didn't know he was Italian, he was Yugoslav. But one thing is for sure is that he's touched a lot of people. Serge Blanc was one of them. The great Antonio used to come into his store to have rings braided into his dreadlocks. In the neighborhood, you have, let's say, a landmark, and that landmark is gone. The great Antonio called this his office. You could find him here almost any day of the week, entertaining people with his stories. He even proposed once to Henriette Legault. Of course he wasn't serious, she says. That's just the kind of man he was. Yeah, look there, and he's not there anymore. We won't see him there anymore on this bench. The bench where he used to sit is empty now, except for flowers, flowers and memories of a man who lived life large. Matthew Pace, CBC News, Montreal. I'm going to start with the general story that most uh, Strongman fans and wrestling fans would know about the Great Antonio. After that, I'm going to explain a little bit about the legends surrounding the Great Antonio. And after that, I'm going to do my best to uncover the facts surrounding the Great Antonio. Now, this piece comes courtesy of good friend of the show, Greg Oliver, from the website SlamWrestling.net. The Great Antonio, a well-known strongman who once impressed Montrealers by pulling city buses, has died. But he was much more than just a strongman. Pro wrestler, actor, raving madman, celebrity, extravagant self-promoter. Antonio Bersavich, 77 died Sunday night after suffering a heart attack in a grocery store. 
but his was a unique story to say the least, and no doubt the facts lie somewhere to the edge of the previously published stories of his life. Named Best Montreal Weirdo by the Montreal Mirror Entertainment newspaper in 2002, Beresavich was born Yugoslavia in 1925 of Serbian descent. He worked at age 6 with a pick and shovel, and by 12 had graduated to pulling trees out of the ground with a cable around his neck. At age 20, in 1946, he came to Canada and learned of the history of the strongman in Canada. Names like Louis Sear, Victor Delamar, and the Berlion brothers. Paul Vachon wrote about the great Antonio in his self-published book, When Wrestling Was Real. Quote, He was truly a character in a business that is by nature full of unusual characters. Antonio started his career as a scrapyard worker, a scavenger, and a resident. Here was a guy, 6 foot 4, 450 pounds, that worked not only in a scrapyard, but lived there in a shack that he made for himself out of old planks, cardboard, cement blocks, and the hood of a junked car. The owners of the scrapyard let him stay there in exchange for the work that he did moving scrap iron around, Vachon wrote. Nobody ever really knew his origins, but he spoke in a mixture of French, Italian, English, Russian, and a little Hungarian. Beresavich got stronger moving the scrap metal around and graduated to moving cars and buses around the lot. He showed up at a Montreal bus terminal, moved a bus in front of many people, and a legend was born. Beresavich was smart enough to capitalize on his feats of strength, getting much media attention and printing up postcards to sell with photos of his accomplishments. Some of the more notable feats of strength included pulling a train loaded with lead for 65 feet, and pulling up to four buses at once loaded with people. Sid Stevens, director of Sun Youth, a Montreal community aid group, recalled one feat performed by the giant, who stood six foot four and weighed about 500 pounds. Quote, I remember he pulled a bus on Saint Laurent Boulevard, the 55, and it was full of passengers, Stevenson told Montreal radio station CJAD. The bus driver was pleading with him not to because he was kind of late on his schedule, but he didn't care. He just grabbed the bus with a rope and pulled it. And when the police officers came, they just stood and watched and didn't even try to interfere. Imagine getting this type of individual into a police car. Jonathan Goldstein of Saturday Night Magazine did a short story of the great Antonio in March of 2000. Quote, Antonio says that he's just naturally strong, that it doesn't matter whether he trains or not. So where does the strength come from? What makes one man stronger than another? It isn't only in the size of the muscles. It's something else. Perhaps it is will. Goldstein would quote the great Antonio. Quote, Me, an expert on physical strength. To understand is to do it. But no one can do it. Six billion in the world. No energy. No strength. Nobody understand. You understand? There is an equally fascinating section on the great Antonio in Bill Richardson's 1997 book, Scorned and Beloved, Dead of Winter Meetings with Canadian Eccentrics. He recalled meeting Antonio at a Montreal donut shop, where the giant of a man began pouring out oodles of clippings proclaiming his greatness. Quote, The headlines just kept on spilling, one after the other, all of them clamoring to be heard after the confinement in the green garbage bag. All the clippings more or less tell the same story. International travel, meetings with celebrities, 
movie roles in films that required convincing autotones such as The Quest for Fire and The Abominable Snowman. As Antonio shows off his impression collection of callings, one by one, and one by one, he annotates the stories in his associative rambling, stream-of-consciousness style. He gets very loud. A strongman show-and-tell unfolds right there, right in the middle of Montreal, in the middle of afternoon, in the middle of Dunkin' Donuts. After his feats of strength made him a name in Quebec and to a lesser degree around the world, Bear Savage tried to break into wrestling by bugging local promoter Eddie Quinn and showing up at the Montreal Forum challenging wrestlers. Continually rebuffed in his efforts to become a grappler, Vachon says that Antonio just started promoting shows himself, usually with him going over in a Battle Royal main event. Eventually, with the wrestling magazine... <coughs> Eventually... With the wrestling magazines clamoring over the potent self-promoter, a few grappling gurus gave him a shot, including Stu Hart in Calgary. Percival Alfred was a young wrestler and wrote about his memories of the great Antonio on his site. Quote, He had a huge beard and long hair parted down the middle that hung to his shoulders. I had seen strongman stunts that he did in Montreal and Quebec City, like pulling a bus loaded with people down a main street using chains and harness made from heavy leather that he hooked onto himself. I even saw them hook him up to a diesel locomotive, and he pulled it down a set of tracks for a city block. I never had the opportunity to wrestle with this guy. But then again, after seeing all the stuff he did, I'm not too sure that I would have cared too much wrestling holds with the guy. Antonio also loved garlic. He would eat clove after clove of the stuff, as it said it gave him lots of internal strength, and kept his heart good. He never had too many dates, even with the worst looking gals that followed the guys around the arena. The truth was that his body reeked from the garlic. According to Vachon, Antonio was simply unmanageable for wrestling promoters who were used to getting their way. Quote, He was a prima donna, and when he saw the big crowds, he figured it was all because of him. For the last number of years, Barisavich seemed comfortable being a well-known weirdo around Montreal, someone that everyone had a story about seeing somewhere, usually on the subway, or popping up unexpectedly in front of a city bus, wanting to pull it. Claiming to be a descendant of extraterrestrials, claiming to be a descendant of extraterrestrials, he peddled his pencils and postcards everywhere. His hair grew even longer than during his wrestling days, with dreadlocks that descended to the floor and the bottoms wrapped in electrical tape, which made it possible for him to golf with his hair. On a handful of occasions, he would attend local wrestling shows, usually to visit old colleagues like Paul the Duke, or Deepak Singh. In Scorned and Beloved, Richardson perhaps puts it best of the last loony years of the great Antonio's life. Quote, Perhaps it's not so surprising that he chooses to dwell in the marble halls of his halcyon days. He trails a magnificent past, that's for sure, and God knows he worked hard for whatever rewards he has received, as any of the bus-pulling photos can attest. He worked hard with what he had, with strength nerve, and more than a little gall. Now, many of the other stories about the great Antonio would involve not only his feats of strength, but his feats of consumption. It would be claimed that Antonio could eat up to 50 chickens in one sitting, that he could eat over 10 steaks in one sitting, that he would eat 30 hot dogs for breakfast. Not only that, it were his feats of... Worldwide records. 
one of which included the world's biggest rocking chair, noted to be, at the time, 14 feet wide. Now there are kernels of truth in the story that you just heard, many of which are told by Antonio himself. Like I said, we're going to, in this episode, get as close to the truth as we possibly can, as we really understand just who the great Antonio was, but more importantly, who Antonio Beresavich was. Before we get into that, though, I am going to bring on my first guest of the evening. David Williams is a Canadian podcaster. He's the host of the Fireside Canada podcast, one of my personal favorites. It's a podcast where David does an exceptional job of talking about Canadian folklore and legends. He does this in a few different ways. He'll explain the legend, many of which you would have heard, such as the legend of Capel, La Chaise Galerie, the Old Hag of Newfoundland, the Haunted Lighthouse of Gibraltar Point, one of my favorites, an episode on the Fort Garry Hotel here in Winnipeg, and a tremendous episode on another French-Canadian legendary strongman, Big Joe, Joseph Mufferon. Not only does David Williams go into tremendous detail on the stories of these legends and folklores from Canadian history, he also does a tremendous job of digging in and getting to the fact of the matter, of where these stories came from, and just how much of these stories are rooted in actual fact in Canadian history. You can find links to this program in the show notes of today's episode. Before I bring on my guest, I'm going to play a little bit of classic Great Antonio audio. Now this comes from a French-Canadian variety show. Listeners of this program will know that Grappling with Canada is heard in over 75 countries worldwide, which means that there are many, many languages that are being spoken by individuals who listen to this program, which is why I'm going to include lots of uh, different language presentations in this program today. So what you are going to hear is a presentation in French, I'll do a little bit of translation later on in the episode. And on the other side of it, you're going to hear uh, my conversation with David Williams. But what I want you to get from this audio clip is a sense of Great Antonio, the entertainer. And I think you'll be able to ascertain from this clip just how magnetizing just how polarizing he was as an individual, and just how he was able to suck people into his orbit with his magnetism, if you will. So once again, I'm going to play this classic audio, and on the other side, my tremendous conversation with David Williams. Please enjoy. À la réception de Michael Jackson à Toronto et qui a fait un tournage pour NBC ici même à Montréal lors de la venue de Michael Jackson. Mesdames, Messieurs, accueillons le grand Antonio.
est pas tenable. Le grand Antonio, venez me voir. Mondial, éminent. Attention. Bonne année à tout le monde. Et toujours en forme. Hop là, hop là, hop là. Vous là, commencez-moi pas ça, venez vous asseoir et restez tranquille. Vous là, Antonio. Imaginez-vous, je l'ai amené me parler de Michael Jackson. Il ne me parlera jamais de Michael Jackson. Regardez bien. Bon, on y va avec le bout. En direct. OK, on y va avec le bout. L'émission, les numéros de la télévision. Une minute. Pour l'émission, mon toxido, c'est Classy. Classy Toxido, le meilleur du monde. Ici, Classy. Marcotte, numéro un, mondial. Oui, c'est vrai, c'est vrai, c'est vrai, c'est un Classy. Bon, il a parfaitement raison. Bon, asseyez-vous deux minutes, là. Oui. Parlez-moi de Michael Jackson que vous oui. avez rencontré. J'espère que vous n'avez pas fait peur à Michael Jackson de même. Vous me faites peur effrayant de mourir. Les seuls au Canada qui ouais. a rencontré Michael Jackson sont moi. Asseyez-vous, je l'aime mieux assis. Pas de problème. Dis-moi-toi, pas besoin de dire vous. Je suis en vedette de la mission canadienne, c'est mondial. Ben, j'espère. Maintenant, il t'a invité à Toronto. À Michael Jackson, à la photo qui est là, là. Oui. Il était invité au parti privé. Oh, oh. où est-ce que c'était? À Toronto, au hôtel Casasom. Oui. Au parti privé. La photo là, il était faite par Color Lab. Ouais. Color Lab est le meilleur photographe au monde. Mais mon Dieu, vous fréquentez avec le meilleur monde au monde, vous? Quand tu vas voir une photo en couleur, c'est Color Lab. <rire> c'est l'Europe. La photo, la photo des superstars. Ça, c'est ah. Ecovedette. Ah oui. L'émission, les vedettes, les journal le numéro un des, des, des artistes et de la télévision. Bon, ça y est. Hé, hey, grand Antonio, parlez-moi de Michael Jackson. Comment il est dans le privé? Michael Jackson, c'est un petit gars très bon. Ouais. Mais quand il m'a vu à moi, oui. Michael... Y a-tu eu peur? Il était peur, il était gêné. Il était gêné? Il <rire> parlait avec moi, tu le dis pour la vérité. Ah ouais. Je veux dire, après, il a commencé, il a dansé avec lui, il a chanté. Il était invité à Montréal, la télévision américaine... Il est venu filmer à Montréal, à NBC, ouais. et Toronto, il était invité au parti de Michael. Bon. Alors, il y a beaucoup de champagne, des vins, des cognacs, des sandwichs au chaviar, des, 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 des biscuits, de, de tout ce que tu voudras, des, des vodka. Oui. Vous, vous en avez bien profité? En masse. En masse. Je veux dire... Dites-moi, Antonio, à combien vous êtes rendu, là? Combien de livres vous pesez? 510. 510 livres? Oui. Michael... Je veux dire, il n'y a qu'un journaliste de la télévision ouais. et à qu'une télévision est capable de rentrer. Des bodyguards partout, dehors ben de oui. l'hôtel, en dedans de l'hôtel, ouais. deux étages bloqués, juste moi qui est capable Mais de rentrer. Pourquoi il vous a invité Parce que moi, je suis le modèle de la télévision américaine. Ah bon Et renommé mondial, mais connaît à Michael, tout à moi connaît Antonio, mondialement. Ben il tient cinq records mondiales. Regardez ça. Il y quatre autobus. Ah ben oui, mais... Euh... Record mondial, ça te la donne. Ouais. Le président Reagan en photo, le pape, le, notre reine Elisabeth, mère de la peau, Trudeau, Maroni, Frank Sinatra, Elisabeth Taylor et ma photo. Ça, c'est un souvenir pour toi. C'est une carte postale. Les photos faites par Colorado okay. à Montréal. <rire> Colorado est le numéro un de la photo couleur mondiale. Hey, Ma Mike Michael Jackson, c'est un bon garçon? Numéro un. Michael Jackson, il travaille très fort, c'est okay. un artiste. Numéro un de la renommée mondiale. Ben, Antonio, numéro un à un autre numéro un, je vous félicite. Je vous souhaite une bonne année. Bonne année, année Marcos. Serrez pas et, trop fort. Et numéro un, les télémétropoles, <rire> Canal 10. Merci. Montréal en direct, les missions, les numéro un. Merci. Le grand Antonio, merci beaucoup. C'est bien gentil. Ouais. Je vais m'en aller. Je vais dire que... Je pensais que... Funny enough, I was thinking about 
Putin, right, or Putin. Um, so Putin, right, was became a became a, a thing uh, in Quebec, and like, I think in the fifties, it was invented in the fifties. And nowadays, right, we all Canadians generally we all talk about how poutine is great we jokingly talk to talk about it as like the iconic canadian dish you know mcdonald's serves poutine right everyone has poutine but i know that back i think it was back in the in the 70s even poutine was made fun of by some in english canada and some in english media and it was seen as a very pedestrian or very lowbrow dish right and, and maybe that I'd have to do some research, so I'm not going to claim this, but like it's interesting to me to think about that. Like it was seen as as this like working class, lowbrow, um, peasant Quebec dish, and and it took a while for it and uh, to to kind of climb out of that. I think we we do see a lot of that of like you know I think that's partly why it's we talked about earlier about punching through that that. Uh, both for both ways in, into Quebec media or Quebec culture and and the rest of English Canada appreciating Quebec culture, um, you see that more and more. And finally now, you know, people are actually enjoying Quebec and what Quebec produces. But I think that's really interesting that back in the 70s, it was seen as like this this lowly dish and it wasn't nearly as celebrated as, as it is today. And you can imagine maybe that's that has some parallels with how great Antonio was uh, was ridiculed as this lowly, uneducated guy who could barely speak a word and he's not really worth my time. Um, and maybe now is the time for him to shine a little brighter. My name is David Williams. I am the uh, host and writer of the podcast Fireside Canada. The line, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. It's interesting, like, you know, we're talking about Canadian legends and lore, mm-hmm. and professional wrestling obviously ties into all of that because you have these larger-than-life characters, and there's different types of lore, and the lore that we find with, with the great Antonio is one that really ties in with you, so Maybe let's let's hear about your experience researching uh, your program, which was covering Joseph Mufferon. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, l- l- looking at, at, at Joseph Mufferon, um, you know, uh, uh, being a person who's interested in in Canadian folklore and history, I knew the name, and of course, everyone knows, uh, you know, the the the, the song from uh, uh, Stomp and Tom Connors and that kind of thing. Um, and so when I when I started to research it, I actually got in contact uh, with see, uh, Historia Canadiana, the the the, the podcast. Um, with Patrick over there, and because uh, I know he's from Quebec, and so I kind of touched base with him and said, oh, "Hey, you're from Quebec, so I got a few questions for you." Since you know he's he's very in, into literature and and um, and very much on the history side of things, and asked, "Okay, here's what I kind of understand about Montferrat. Can you kind of answer a few questions for me? Do you have any resources that you know of, especially in French? Because <laughs> if, if you're trying to to do some research and you want to go on the French side of things, and you're an Anglophone like I am, really hard to find the content." Um, so he kind of pointed me to to a, a few uh, um, well the main book by Solt, uh, which is like the the main biography of Montferrat, and um, I, he also answered a very simple question, which was basically, I've I know I've never heard of him in my school schooling here in BC, right? I never learned about him growing up, I just learned about him by being interested in folklore. Do they teach about Montferrat in Quebec? And he said, actually, no, they don't, uh, which was kind of surprising to me because. You know, there are government buildings named after him. There are streets named after him in Quebec. And uh, he said, at least as far as he knew from his experience, no, they don't teach about him in high schools. Um, and maybe I think it was like second or third year university, uh, university he eventually heard about him. So 
kind of diving in from there, reading Solt's uh, work on on Montferrat, um, reading as much as I could about him, you know, in the the Canadian biographies and that kind of thing, and slowly piecing together uh, the the history of his life. And then from there, I kind of dove into a lot of the old newspaper articles. Um, so a lot of ones uh, published in Ottawa and in Montreal in English, because a lot of the French stuff isn't at least archived for uh, anglophones to to get easy access to and it would be very hard for me to search for it so i did a lot of searching there and found some old stories about montferrat uh shared by english people who lived and worked in montreal and lived and worked in, in ottawa and in the ottawa valley and kind of ran into him or more often their grandfathers told stories about working alongside him and how strong he was and how he'd carry logs like he'd uh, they'd chop down huge trees in the forest and he just carry them himself on his shoulders and throw them into the river uh so that was kind of how i i can kind of compiled it was the main biography which i think was i can't remember what it was in my episode i mentioned it was i think 20 years or so after his death maybe even more so by that time he was already a legend and then the newspaper articles which included stories from grandfathers and of course that was also he was a legend he was bigger than life and he stopped a fight in a tavern by grabbing two guys and banging them together until he agreed to shake hands that kind of thing now it's interesting because you know you have his story as told by others and it's passed down through generations as you explained in your episode Mm -hmm. kind of the same thing happens with with the great antonio because here's a guy who although he wasn't born in in quebec or in montreal uh he ends up moving there at an early age makes a name for himself again at an early age and you kind of see this progression throughout the you know 30s 40s 50s 60s of you know when he arrives he's i don't know i'm not sure if you ever saw any pictures of him as as a young man but he is totally different from how you see him later in life with you know, the scruffy beard and the dreadlocks that he needs together to, you know, use a golf club amongst other things. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting because you almost, you you see the, you know, grandfathers and fathers talk about someone like great Antonio and their perceptions of him from those time frames. So you get these stories of, yeah, he was a, he was a strapping guy and, and, you know, he was like a movie star. You hear things like that. And then later on in life, oh, he was this big, almost uh, um, a gargoyle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting how a perception of somebody will shift throughout generations of a story being told. So you, as much as you gain throughout the story being told, you kind of lose certain aspects of it. When you were doing your research about uh joe muffero was that something that you found as well like some of the earlier stuff was kind of left out of it and what you were kind of left with was more of the modern telling of everything yeah i think well yeah a lot of the stuff once you once you start looking into molfara definitely comes from from that main biography and because it was written so so late um, a lot of that stuff was already kind of a myth. So like everyone knew the main talking points, like, you know, how he he stamped his his feet on the ceiling of a tavern and, and made boot marks and how he, of course, the classic thing where he he battled 100, and, 100 people, 120 people, whatever, um, on, on a bridge between, uh, which is, I guess, modern day Hull and modern day um uh, or yeah ottawa um so that that those kinds of battles always became this 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 big iconic thing and then occasionally you'd come across different tales where 
it was a lot more subdued or you'd hear different um, arguments like you would hear about uh, um, I think his name was, was Hennessy, the, the, the big guy who he battled, who was like, you know, the, the main enforcer of the shiners, they say. And so you came across people who said they never met. And then they're saying, well, actually, they, they did meet and Montferrat just destroyed him. And and uh, and Hennessy was just he was just lost and he he went away into the shadows. He was never heard from again. But then other people say, oh, no, he was actually they were really great friends. And they they met together at the tavern and they had a big fight once. And then they always kind of kind of hung around. And actually, there's a really interesting story from later, far later, about someone someone talking about their grandfather telling a story about how. Hennessy and he were were down at the river, and uh, they decided to have kind of like a friendly sparring match. And uh, Hennessy was getting the better of Montferrat, and so Montferrat started kicking. And everyone knew that like once he starts kicking, because his kick is deadly, if he get, makes contact with you with his feet, your life is essentially over. So the guy kind of stepped back and said, hey, Joe, no kicking. Come on, this is just friendly. And apparently Joe felt so bad about it, he went and sat down and put his head in his hands. And <laughs> his friend came over and and uh, reassured him and said it was okay. Um, so you, you get little things like that. And you, then you also get little little fun things like um, the, uh, the classics. Uh, there's a weird little story from a newspaper about how Montferrat um, was really into cockfighting. And so because cockfighting was really big back back then in, in, in the Ottawa Valley. And so he brought a, a rooster to, to fight in the ring uh, and his rooster was destroyed by someone else's rooster. So he actually, according to this legend, stole that guy's rooster and then ran away with it. And uh, when the guy came around looking for his rooster and heard that Joseph Montferrand had stolen it, he eventually found him at the work camp that he was working out you know, towards the woods. And the, the the story says that Montferrat ran and hid from him, not because he was scared of him, but because he felt so ashamed that he stole this guy's rooster. <laughs> and eventually he just apologized <laughs> and begged the guy if he could please have his rooster. And he named him Little Joe and he used him in, in subsequent fights. So you get weird things like that. You don't really know what to make of. And I really wanted to mention that in the episode, but there was no real use for it so i just kind of mentioned it in social media and moved on but yeah you get these little little things where he's either treated as this this incredibly strong incredibly brave incredibly smart man who can do no wrong and then you get these little fun stories as well that i'm assuming are just good-natured ribbing um rather than trying to tear him down or anything uh and then you know more realistic aspects that you know he he was friends with with some of these bigger guys that he battled that they weren't just like two titans fighting that they were just regular people too so you you kind of get uh, uh both of that see it's fascinating how much that kind of corresponds with with the great antonio story because you have the you have the fantastical stories about him you know although he did make the guinness world records for you know, pulling buses and having the, which is my favorite part, having the world's biggest rocking chair, which is <laughs> a, just a tremendous record to have. But you, so you, you have the factual portions, but then you also have how everything gets blown out of proportion, how, you know, four buses turns into 10 and mm-hmm. then it turns into loaded buses of, of school children, we'll say, for example, mm-hmm. or you, you, you have tales where, He's doing tug of war uh, with his hair against 10 men. Then it's 20 men. Then it's, you know what I mean? And and a a lot of it is, is good natured and it kind of, it it builds the character, but then you also have the, the, as you put it, the good natured ribbing where 
you know, later in life, he was he was impoverished and all that, you know, his kind of unfortunate end of it all, right, where he was kind of on the streets and everything. And it, he was almost an oddity at that point, a yeah, friendly sure. oddity. But but the public knew him. Oh, you know, there's the great Antonio almost then as as a lark instead of, you know, somebody who was actually viewed as great throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, for example. Yeah, and I think actually, yeah, that, that you bring up two good points. Yeah, so if we're talking about like you know making a guy or a person to a legend, um, yeah, you definitely have that with with that classic story of, of the bridge fight, right? Like early some 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 more down to earth sources that I could find, but you know they're all kind of generally from Sulte, but they basically say that okay, he fought probably twenty shiners on that bridge. And then that number inflated. So from 20 to 50 to 100 to 150, I think Sult said uh, said 120 or so, or maybe it was 80. But like, yeah, you you, you can kind of track that. You get all these different stories. It was 20 between 100 between 20 to 120. So that becomes huge, right? And then you get the more really fantastical stuff, right? Like the his classic calling card was putting his his boots onto the ceiling of a tavern but then eventually that became according to uh, to one informant uh, to a folklorist he kicked the entire roof off a tavern right because that's where you get the, the the giant of a man um where he, he would he would do that kind of thing and then i, I think another uh, story that's often ascribed to him is uh, is actually found in paul bunyan stories as well so there's this he, we, we know that he did a lot of, much like the great Antonio, he did a lot of um, public displays of strength, right? Because that's a key thing about being a, especially a French-Canadian strongman, but a, a strongman in general. So you go to, and you go into the town and you say, hey, dare me to do this, or I bet I bet you want to see me do that. And so he would go and he'd, he'd grab a, a big plow, for example, and uh, he balances on balances it on his chin and he walks, you know, two city blocks and comes back and everyone's, you know, mesmerized by how he managed to do this. And there's a classic story where he grabbed one plow by just one hand and lifted it up over his head and then put it back down. It was like, you know, 500 pound, 500 pound plow, I think. Um, and then that story eventually became, OK, he didn't just pick it up with one hand. He picked it up with one hand and he gestured with it to point someone like which way a store was or which way they should go. And, uh, and actually then that story you find in Paul Bunyan um, uh, stories as well. You find it that Paul Bunyan was once plowing a field and someone came along and asked Paul where something was. And he stopped and he picked up the, the plow and his ox attached to the plow and pointed in the direction of where they had to go, put it back down and then kept plowing. So yeah, you, you get these, these really crazy uh, uh, um, exaggerations of his strength that become mythical. And if, yeah, as we see, uh, becomes not just a Montferrand story, but also then a, a Paul Bunyan story. And actually, the funny thing about that Paul Bunyan story is one of the main stories about Paul Bunyan lifting a plow and pointing in a direction is they say uh, that Joe or Joe Muffra, right, the anglicized version of Mulfera, what came down to try to find Paul Bunyan to fight him. And so Joe Muffra came upon Paul Bunyan, saw him plowing in his field, and then he saw Paul Bunyan as he reached the end of his plow. He picked up the, the plow and the ox, turned around, and then kept plowing the other way. And Joe Muffra was so shocked by this incredible feat of strength, he just ran away. <laughs> so that was the way that the Americans <laughs> took the legendary Joe Muffra, which they knew about from uh, uh, French Canadian stories, and um, showed that Paul Bunyan was even better because he scared Joe Muffra away with his incredible strength. I just find it interesting that, you know, the strongman story is something that seemed to be so prevalent in 
French Canadian folklore and even in popular culture, you know, through the late 1800s up until almost the 1980s. And I'm not sure about yourself and and what you were able to research throughout the uh, Joe Mufferon story. But for myself, you know, it, it almost seems like when the great Antonio passed away, that almost seemed to be the end of the storytelling of of these legendary French-Canadian strongmen. Now, granted, there have been stories written. Uh, one would be, or an example of one would be the uh, Elise Gravel picture, or children's book on the great Antonio. But it seems almost that that, that, that generation of, of storytelling of the Montreal or French Canadian, I should say, proper strongmen is almost done with. Is that something that you found in your research as well? Yeah. Um, well, when you first kind of reached out about Great Antonio, like I, I heard of him, but I didn't know much about him. And I managed to find a, a pretty good documentary um, in in French on YouTube. And I can't remember who they were talking with. It was a, a French Canadian historian. And he basically kind of um, summarized that. Um, yeah, that you know, of course, Antonio definitely followed in, in the tradition of these French Canadian strongmen. Even though he wasn't French Canadian uh, by birth, he you know, was adopted by the community and became uh, a strongman for that community. And um, I, th- I, th- I believe from what <laughs> again, I'm trying to translate this myself while I'm watching it. But I think uh, that, uh, he made a good point um, in that you can kind of track it and see that when he started early in his career, it was a lot of that public displays of strength, which was very classic strongman tradition, right? So um, Louis Cyr, Joseph Montferrand, uh, Arthur Dandelon, they all went out to the public square. They would all just say, hey, let me show you something amazing. And then they would perform in front of a crowd and their name became widely known. And, you know, um, so you know, I, I saw stories about the great Antonio, right? He would come along and, yeah, as you say, he would, he'd stop city buses. I, I read some stories of people saying, I was late to go see a movie because the great Antonio stopped my bus and then insisted that they turn off the engine so he could drag it down the street. And there's nothing you can do because what are you going to do? He's giant. So you just sit there and allow him to take you down the street in your bus. So that was a big thing and a big tradition. And uh, this, the, uh, the historian suggested that once TV really started taking over um, for, for people's main source of entertainment, everything became inside the home rather than outside in the community. And so that's when perhaps the great Antonio transitioned more into the wrestling ring rather than outdoor shows of strength, because that's where everyone's attention was going to see. That's a fascinating aspect of the story too because you see the progression of great antonio doing the strongman aspect then moves into professional wrestling a lot of it was uh self-promotion mm-hmm. something that we get into later in the program but then you know you move into the 70s into the 80s now he's a television personality mm-hmm. and, and he's on a lot of the french canadian telethons he's on a lot of the variety programs as, as we used to call them uh, he's on uh, Johnny Carson in, in the late 80s. You can see the progression as people's interests change. He almost changes with them. Mm-hmm. But then it gets to a point where it's it, it almost comes to a dead stop. And and he's almost viewed as at that point. So we would be talking about early 90s. Now he's in he's almost viewed as an oddity rather than rather than a cultural phenomenon, if you will. 
Yeah, and I yeah I I definitely got that sense as well, and uh, I I don't know how how much of that was was true with the the French media versus the English media. Like when I was looking up articles about him in English, uh, you know, you you see a lot of derision in his later days, right? People saying that like, oh, you know, he 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 can barely speak English, and then they would they would quote him, and you know, he would sound very halted in the way he was speaking, and you're like, oh, and then like actually, I even saw one article which really I thought was amazing. Um, the the reporter talked about how the great Antonio was illiterate. He's like, oh, well, he's illiterate. And illiterate is a very interesting word to use there. Of course, he wasn't illiterate. And if you watch the videos of him, he speaks, as far as I can tell, very good French, if not very fluent French. Um, obviously, he could read because he did amazing artwork and murals and that kind of thing. He cut out headlines about himself. So illiterate doesn't mean you can't read English. Illiterate means you can't read at all. You're n- you're not educated. So to use that word really suggests that there was this this idea that some p- people, perhaps in the media, wanted to get across of this idea that the great Antonio was an illiterate and an uneducated person, and therefore worth looking down upon or maybe taking down a peg. I kind of got that impression from some of the stuff that I read. See, you're not far off because I also found the same. Imp- it's interesting what you get from French Canadian sources, mm-hmm. um, from overseas sources, which I, I have a few that I've come across in my research, and then from English sources. And there's definitely a, a large disconnect between mm-hmm. how he's perceived specifically. We'll just talk about Canada here at this point, specifically in, in French Canada, and then how he's perceived in English Canada. So in French Canada, they he's one of them right Hmm. like you said would he have been the most fluent of french no but he also spoke seven languages (laughs) so yeah so there's that part and english was not his strongest suited one Mm -hmm. so now when you when you you read tales of him him being great antonio in places like calgary uh for stampede wrestling uh you read about him in in america and you read the comments that people at the time had to say, and, you know, they would find him difficult to communicate with mm-hmm. the language barrier. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the, so then it's like, well, is he, is he slow? Well, no, he just doesn't like English is not his, his strongest language. Keep mm-hmm. in mind, he can speak. Uh, I believe at one time it was, French, it was Italian, it was Russian, he could speak Croatian, he could speak uh, Ukraine, like, there's there's several, seven or eight different languages that he, on top of English, Mm -hmm. right? So it's very easy for uh, English, Canada, especially, you know, prejudices, I can't Mm -hmm. speak right now, but you know (laughs) what I mean, being what they were at the time, uh, that that they, they would kind of look at him as being behind or slow or illiterate as you had said yeah for sure and you and you definitely get that sense like i remember you know you read about him in in books or uh yeah compiled articles about him yeah definitely in in the english or in english-speaking canadian press yeah, and you you get that impression that well he's so big that he, he must be big and dumb and yeah he can barely speak english so he must be illiterate again which like no he can re- he can read just fine he he was a very very talented guy and a very charming guy from what i could see he just didn't speak our language that great um that shouldn't be a big deal but yeah so you definitely get that skewed view of him in the media now one of the other things that i wanted to ask you about 
you know, during your your research for the Joseph Mafra episode, because I find it interesting that, you know, a couple of us Western Canadianers, if you will, would be so interested in French Canadian folklore. Mm -hmm. That part is right up your alley specifically because of what you do with Fireside Canada. So I wanted to know what is it about the how the French Canadians preserve and discuss their folklore that is so much different than what we have in English Canada, but more specifically in Western Canada? Oh yeah, that's so. That's a a big question and a hard hard question to answer. But like, I think it, when you're looking at at French Canadian folklore, it's because they you know a, a lot of the folklore is is stemming back from from the first French people to to, to come on onto this continent, right? So like from the the, the late 1500s, the early 1600s, um, and so you know you can actually trace back stories of strongmen, like you look at at Louis Cyr and Joseph Montferrand, but then all the way back to the the very folkloric, very legendary Tijon. Have you ever heard of Tijon? That one I'm not familiar with. No. Yes, so so Tijon, like he's he's not a real person, at least as far as we know. He's he's a legend. So Tijon is is a a very popular character in in Quebec folklore, although not as popular as you might think. Uh, but like there was a lot of videos about Tijon back in the the sixties and fifties, I think. Um, and then, but he he stems back very very far. He's he's part part of of the the Contes, which is a certain part of of French Canadian folklore. So you you have you have certain legends and stories that are told as if they were true um like le chascalerie is told as if it's it, it was like a true thing and then you have classic contes or stories like these these just these old-fashioned stories about kings and princesses and monsters and that kind of thing and tijon is part of those contes those those stories about about uh, uh, uh tijon was like uh, this this larger than life incredibly strong incredibly brave hero who would do all these various things so it would be tijon and the monster of the hill and tijon saves the princess and tijon this and tijon that it's all these different tijon stories um tijon being petit jean or little john and so um back in in early days of french canada he was this this really strong hero and it was one of the many stories you'd hear around the fire uh, um, where you'd, you'd listen to these great escapades of Tijon and how he saved this princess from this evil monster or from a king or whatever else. And then as it progressed, he became this very strong lumberjack. And then in the 50s, there were little there were videos made uh, where Tijon was this little kid and this, he's like this little boy who goes around and it became like this, this government thing where he would go to the lumber camps and he would throw logs uh, into a big pile of logs and he'd hack down all the trees faster than all the men and they'd all admire how strong he was and then he'd go to somewhere else another thing of industry and go show that industry so it was a way to like educate kids about how the industry of the province works with this legendary character Tijon and if you look at his history you can also see that there is influence by and influence on perhaps um uh, first nations legends and traditions as well so you can kind of see tijon a little bit in nanabush or nanaboso which is uh, 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 another certain strong legendary character from first nations traditions uh he's more like a trickster and so they're not quite the same but they they overlap and in some metis traditions you can actually find that they're used interchangeably uh tijon is very much like or in some some ways is nanabozo or nanabush or whiskey jack 
And so you can trace that through there and see how they've influenced and and uh, and uh, kind of made, made up these various stories for all, uh, several different cultures uh, throughout that region of Canada. And then you can trace it even further, perhaps, according to some folklorists, where you can see that Tijon may be based on uh, a character from Brittany, which is in northwest France, um, just known as Jan uh, or Yannick. And he was, again, that very big, larger-than-life giant, or at least very strong hero. And um, there are some who think that his that from, so Jan, right, John, uh, or Little John, and then Yannick became Tijon, but Tijon, Little John. And the idea is that maybe Jan from Brittany came over to North America, became Tijon up in Quebec, and then in the southern French Canadian camps, he became Bon Jan or Banyan, and eventually Bunyan, or Paul Bunyan. So you can trace all this strongman stuff all the way back to France. We don't know how old Jan is. Um, and then it, you can see it, it bleeds over right down to the south to become Bunyan. So it's because they've been here so long, and because all the, all the stories have, are, are, have been told and shared across such a vast distance, you have this incredibly strong uh, cultural foothold uh, with, where that starts with this kind of tradition. And so, yeah, I think that's a big thing that you don't really get, especially out here in the West, because much of Western Canada um, didn't really see a lot of settlement until quite later, uh, later on, right? So you don't, and you don't get a lot of those stories and those um, those groups of people coming out to the West. And you, a classic idea of looking at folklore is to have a really good, strong sense of folklore and folk legend. Is you need a large a significant size of a, of a community, and then you need a lot of isolation around that community. So that's perfect for lumber camps and stuff. You go out to the bush, you're with people for about a year or so, you tell stories to pass the time because there's not a lot of entertainment out there, and then the stories are shared, and the people who can tell the stories are valued almost as much as the cook. You, whenever you're trying to get a lumber camp going, you look for a great cook first, then a great storyteller, and then maybe a good foreman. Um, and you, just, you, do, you didn't see that as much until... Uh, because no one really came out to the West until much, much later in the co- the country's history. See, that is absolutely fascinating. You know, you you could draw a straight line from from France proper to French Canada, and it, it makes perfect sense what you're saying about you know the length of the settlement being there. Obviously, adds time for aspects like this to percolate. Right, you're not going to get the same thing in, in BC. Where, where you're based or Alberta or even here in Manitoba, because we haven't been here that as long. Right. I, I think uh, if you're looking at the grand scheme of, of colonization settlement, if you will, right, we're, we're talking about a few hundred years, right. Where some of these are, you know, four to 500 years or more, right. Especially what you're talking about, you know, going dating well, well, well back in France. So that's, that's definitely a fascinating aspect that I would have never, would have never considered, I guess, you know, how far back some of these stories can be traced. But it does make sense now, you know, when when you look at how these folklores kind of take hold and take root in French Canada, it makes sense that a character like, uh, you know, Joseph Mafra or Louis Sierre or as our titular episode tonight, you know, the great Antonio, how they can almost take they almost draw power from the folklore that's existing. And there's almost this built-in base that is ready to believe in this person based on previous 
uh, exposure to stories like that that is deeply, deeply rooted in the culture of French Canada. Yeah, for for sure. Like, yeah, there's there's this this very very strong connection, right? And like you, you can sense that that when Great, Great Antonio came along, he's coming along in the footsteps of these other characters, and everyone has heard stories from their parents or grandparents or whatever about these these larger than life strongmen performing amazing feats, and here's Great Antonio doing the exact same thing. Yeah, and you can tie it right into that tradition. And I know that like uh, uh, I kind of mentioned this in my episode back in the the 70s. Um, the two writers of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, they did this massive multi-volume set, and uh, they got around to Joseph Montferrand and talked about him in, in, uh, in the, their biography book and kind of theorized, like, why is it that the strongmen are so popular, especially amongst French Canadians? And they basically said, well, they feel that it's because, I guess I'll quote here, like, the more a society feels weak and threatened, the more it clings to giants. So the idea that you know French Canada, uh, especially after the English um, uh, essentially took over, um, they they continued on living as within their own their own community, uh, but they there was this need to identify their own cultural traditions and show themselves as being strong. And so by celebrating and sharing these kinds of stories, the characters become cultural icons of a French Canada that is important and strong and resilient and can endure. And so, yeah, I think there's this there's this really strong cultural connection there. I think also a big thing about these kind of characters, and you can kind of see it through Great Antonio and uh, Louis, Louis Cyr and Joseph Montferrand, is they all come from working class backgrounds, right? They're not rich princes. They're not from uh, they're not from from a lot of wealth. They worked hard for a living. Like I think even Great Antonio, right? I, I think one of the original stories from when he was a kid was he would pull trees out of the ground with his neck or something like that. Is that right? That's that is one of them, yes. Okay, yeah. So like, and that goes <laughs> right along with Louis Cyr and Joseph Montferrand also being young lumberjacks in the woods, right? They worked with their hands, and they 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 came from working class backgrounds and lived in working class neighborhoods. They were a champion of the people. So you you definitely get all these these common themes about working hard and and making sure that your culture and your people and your way of life endures. See that that part is is very pertinent to this episode as well because you have the great antonio who you know for all of his fame and notoriety was always viewed always viewed as a man of the people mm-hmm. right regardless of uh how english canada viewed him in in certain sections or you know america or how he was viewed in japan in, in french canada he was he was always of the people and it didn't matter, you know, it didn't matter that he was on all the television shows, it didn't matter that he was on radio, it didn't matter that, you know, Johnny Carson, all that kind of stuff. It, it really didn't matter. And then, you know, the downside of that obviously is is how his, how, you know, towards the end of his life he ended up. Um, but throughout his career, it was interesting, at least, seeing how he interacted and, and was viewed as just you're not average person. I don't want to say it that way, like pejoratively, but he, he was almost viewed as, as the relatable living legend, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you definitely get that sense through all of them is that, yeah, these are, these are relatable down to earth people. And again, I think that also speaks to the theatrics, right? Like you could come across this person, whether it's Montferrand or uh, Sear or um, Antonio just in your regular life. And suddenly you see this, 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 
a little event of greatness happen in front of you, right? He's pulling a bus in front of you, or he's getting a group of men on either side to yank on his hair, or uh, I think one one French Canadian strongman from the 30s like would would uh, dare you to try to bend his pinky finger, and you couldn't do it. Like these are amazing stories you can take home at the end of the day, and it just it was something to kind of perk you up. But he was he was just like you, right? He you weren't not as strong as him, but he came from the same background, and he was still very down to earth, just like you. Or you were trying to go to work and he stopped your bus to pull it to work for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As you just heard in my conversation with David Williams, there are many feats of strength that were absolutely enthralling that the great Antonio delivered to thousands upon thousands of adoring fans these feats of strength and these feats also in wrestling rings would be told by fans to other individuals passed on to newspapers and the legend of the great antonio grew from there what also happened was the great antonio's tremendous ability to promote himself now this knack for self-promotion above all else would land the great Antonio in a great deal of sticky situations, two of which are very well known to professional wrestling fans, both happening in Japan. The incident with Ricky Dozan and the horrific incident against Antonio Inoki, which you would have heard audio representing that aspect at the start of today's program. Before I get into those aspects a little bit more, I do want to read a little bit from the Pain and Passion book, The History of Stampede Wrestling, written by author and friend of the show, Heath McCoy. This gives a little bit more backstory about something that Mad Dog Vachon talked about earlier on in the program with uh, Antonio kind of having a big head and being a little bit difficult to work with. So, from the book, again, Stampede Wrestling's uh, Pain and Passion. A Yugoslavian immigrant of Siberian descent who came to Canada in 1946, Antonio Beresevich lived in a Montreal scrapyard sleeping in a broken-down bus. The 450-pounder soon discovered he was strong enough to pull the bus around the scrapyard, and he parlayed that into a wrestling career. A beast of a man with a grizzly beard and greasy black hair that hung to the ground, making him look like Rasputin, Antonio made a name for himself in Montreal in the 1950s, hauling up to four packed buses at a time down city streets. In 1952, he made it into the Guinness Book of World Records by pulling a 433-ton train 19.8 meters. He also famously braided and taped his coarse dreadlocks together, using his hair, bizarrely, as a golf club. Wrestling promoters from around the world sought to bring him into their territories, and Stu was no exception. Antonio arrived in Calgary for the first time in 1959. According to Paul Vachon, Dave Rule phoned Antonio one day pretending to be Mabel, which was, in Stampede Wrestling, a rib that the wrestlers would pull on a newcomer. Uh, they would have, essentially, somebody phone the new wrestler pretending to be this sultry Mabel character. Rule said in a sultry voice to Antonio, I just love your body. Antonio, who stunk horribly because he ate raw garlic every day, didn't receive many sexual propositions and went wild. 
Mabel told him, I want you to bring Dave Rule and Mad Dog Vachon with you. I've got two girlfriends who want to meet them. No, no, I go by myself, Antonio said. I take care of all of you. Eventually, Antonio agreed to Mabel's terms, and that Saturday night, the three wrestlers went to meet the temptress. When Mabel's insane husband showed up, he blasted Rule and Mad Dog. As they went down clutching their chests, Mad Dog turned to the Yugoslavian madman and cried, Run, Antonio, run! The giant bolted out the door and into the pitch-black night, sprinting across the field, cutting himself on barbed wire fences along the way. The wrestlers came out and partied hard with the beer and whiskey Antonio brought with him to woo Mabel. By most accounts, Stu usually kept his distance from such debauchery. But on this particular night, he too was in on the gag. At 7 the next morning, Antonio called Paul Vachon in his hotel room, ranting that Rule and Mad Dog had been shot and now the killer was out to get him. Vachon accused him of being drunk and hung up. Antonio went to the RCMP who began an investigation. The Vachon brothers showed up to the RCMP station and, after convincing the petrified behemoth that it was all just a rib and that he wasn't going to be assassinated, got him in a car and back on the road. He would wrestle for Stu off and on until the 1970s. It is worth noting as well that there was a match in the early 1970s involving the Great Antonio where a riot nearly ensued when the Great Antonio almost won the heavyweight championship, which again goes to the magnetism that he had with the fans, but also the fact that he really was uh, an expert at self-promotion. Now, as I had alluded to, two of the most infamous episodes involving the Great Antonio took place over in Japan. One was involving Ricky Dozen, who was, at the time, the biggest star in Japanese professional wrestling. At the time, Japanese stars were looking for uh, Gaijin for looking for international talent to bring over so that the Japanese star could beat them to further cement themselves in the eyes of the fans in Japan. This would be a trend that would continue into the 70s, which is why you have a big name, the great Antonio, being shipped over to Japan to wrestle the Japanese top star. Unfortunately for the great Antonio, both of these incidents didn't go very well for him. Some of which were his own doing, but some of which was also the fault of the Japanese promoters and of the Japanese talent involved in these situations. You're going to hear a lot more about these incidents with my next guest, recurring guest and great friend of the show, Javier Oist. Now, Javier Oist, for those who are unfamiliar, is a writer for ProWrestlingStories.com and one of the most fair writers in terms of telling stories about professional wrestlers. And he told a story of when the great Antonio faced Antonio Noki and what happened in that horrific situation. It's the most fair and accurate article, in my opinion, that is out there in regards to the situation. Unfortunately, it's one of those situations where wrestling fans have kind of taken bits and pieces of the story and have blown it up without actually understanding the context of why it happened. And we get into that in great detail with my conversation with Javier Oist. Now, before we get into that, 
I'm going to play some more classic wrestling audio. Now, this clip comes from Japan, from news sources, when the great Antonio headed there to face Ricky Dozan. Now, this clip is in Japanese, but I will give a rough translation of what happened uh, during the clip. So, it's essentially a news story showing the arrival of, of the great Antonio. It shows him doing some of his feats of strength in the video. He's pulling uh, three buses loaded with passengers, and there are literally thousands of screaming fans watching him do this. The scene then shifts to the match between the Great Antonio and Ricky Dozen, where the Great Antonio is being led into the ring by his manager with big chains around the Great Antonio's neck. This is something that we would see later on in Japanese wrestling. And this is a point that I make in my conversation with Javier Oist, where we would see later wrestlers such as Abdullah the Butcher, the Sheik, etc., who would really use this uh, monster character, this foreign monster menace in Japanese wrestling. You can trace the lineage of all of that right back to the first instance of the great Antonio appearing in the Japanese promotion. It's a fascinating little tidbit of information and of history that many wrestling fans don't understand and don't know. And I was fortunate enough to uncover that throughout the research of tonight's program. So I'm going to play this uh, audio clip. And on the, on the other side, my conversation with Javier Ois. One thing I will say, I hope that you will pay, pay particular attention to the sound of the crowd during the audio clip, both in terms of the great Antonio's arrival to Japan and when the wrestling match starts. It's a little hard to make out, but I think you'll be uh, pretty surprised by the reaction that the great Antonio gets from the crowd specifically. So please enjoy this audio, and on the other side, my tremendous conversation with Javier Oist. ま、4台を銃繋ぎにしてアントニオがうごいたうごいたとお客さんは大喜び。こうして前へ行きは嫌が上にも盛り上がった。そしてこのミツリン男が力道山の持つインターナショナル選手権に挑戦。インターナショナル選手権試合時間無制限3本勝負。挑戦
大関の大鵬関も観戦中でありますこれを迎え撃つ力道山は過去ドン・レオ・ジョナサンジム・ライトエンリキ・トーレスらの強豪を打ち破ってこれが10回目の防衛戦であります怪力の密林男は持ち前の強力に任せてがむしゃらにアタック力道山の額から早くも出血いたしました血が流れ出しております力道山得意の空手チョップを祝いましたまたもや空手チョップもう一発顔面死に染めまして力道山空手チョップを祝いますアントニオ止まらずダウンであります高車でロープ越しに叩きつけられましたリング外で悶絶ついにカウントアウトかカウントアウト力道山は怪物アントニオをストレートで下しインターナショナル選手権を防衛監修の観光に応えました And, but there's a lot of mystery behind his life, and, 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 and I think, in a way, that's what we like about wrestling, where a lot, these, these stories where, 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 does the, where does the truth and where does the、uh, fiction start. And, and, and. My name's Javier Oist, and I write for Pro Wrestling Stories, and you can check everything out at ProWrestlingStories.com. Now, at the start of the article, you Describe a lot about his early years, his formative years in Montreal. And I think that that sets a good backstory to what ends up happening because, you know, unfortunately, and, and you know this from your work with Pro Wrestling Stories, wrestling fans are really good at tuning into one part of somebody's life and kind of overlooking the rest of it. So before we get into really the two main subjects that I want to discuss with you tonight, maybe let's backtrack a little bit. And talk about what you were able to uncover in terms of the great Antonio in his formative years and what you found most interesting about that portion of it. Well, the great Antonio, from what I gather, he was from the former Yugoslavia. But I've also heard in interviews him, him, he himself saying he's from Russia, other people saying he's from Italy, which was due to me. So, right from the start, you're wondering. Where, where is he from and why there's so many different stories on where he's from coming out of his mouth? It might sound more interesting saying you're from Russia, or, but I discovered he's from, to me, what I understand, he's from Yugoslavia. He moved to Montreal in the early 40s. And、uh, there are stories about him from a young age, supposedly pulling uprooting tree trunks with,、uh, with, with his.、Uh, Neck strength and his back, of course, but with a chain around either his head or his neck. So he's pulling out these, these、uh, tree stumps and he started doing、uh, feats of strength. He claims he was, he bought, he also was a boxer. And of course,、uh, traditionally in wrestling, it seems like、uh, there has been a, a story, there ha- has been a storied history. Of,、uh, or infamous history of strong men who try to go into wrestling. Almost like, you know, wrestling has, it, has the ties to, to the carnival circuits and a circus. So、uh, you had strong men who claimed that they were wrestlers and tried to get into wrestling. Some succeeded, some did not. And in this case, for the great Antonio,、uh, he tried to get in wrestling once he. Uh, made a name of himself as a strong man in Montreal. And he had,、uh, let's say, different, different levels of, of success. What we can confirm that he was a great attraction, but I've never 
under, I've never discovered or read anywhere that he that claims that he was a great wrestler. But of course, in pro wrestling, you don't need to be an exceptional athlete or wrestler uh, to be a, a good draw at the gate. And what I've read is that Antonio, great Antonio, was a great attraction and a very interesting person that people wanted to go watch and people would pay to go watch. It's interesting. I've I've come across articles uh, of the great Antonio newspaper clippings from the eras and it. The, many of the shows that he was the main attraction on were, you know, your you would have a couple undercards and then the main event would be a battle royal and he would win the battle royal. So and this kind of feeds into right away the Ricky Dozan portion of the of our discussion tonight, which we're going to get to in a second. But again, we, we have to lay the backstory. So here you have the great Antonio. Legendary strongman in Montreal, he's winning these battle royals against you know 10 20 30 men he, he again he's not the greatest wrestler but it that doesn't matter what matters is what you're hearing about the grand antonio that he's coming out on top of you know 30 competitors time after time after time what's lost in translation a little bit is for a lot of his formative years or a lot of his formative years in wrestling i should say he was also the promoter putting these shows on. So now you have a situation where, yes, he's going over, and yes, he's absolutely the attraction, but you have the added caveat that he's also the one putting the shows together. So you kind of start to see a pattern develop of he's on top, he he's on top because he's been putting himself on top, but that gets lost in translation overseas, and then you get what happened in Japan. So maybe we'll fast forward a little bit into your article, and we can talk about the Ricky Dozan situation because that also leads to a much larger and much more dangerous situation later in in his life. It, what's more fascinating I think is that a lot of his formative years in professional wrestling would have been the late 40s, early 50s. Now when we're talking about this these Japanese dates we're into the 60s and we're into the 70s. So maybe let's start with how the Ricky Dozan uh, situation came about. Well, the great Antonio was introduced to the Japanese public with a lot of flair. Uh, a lot of people went to meet him at the at the port where he arrived. And uh, right off the bat, the attraction of 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 the great Antonio was, you know, he he, he had he, he was he was his strongman character. But at the same time, kind of like this wild, wild persona, they they would put him with uh, they had him. With uh, little people wrestlers, what they would call at that point, at, at the, they would call midgets, but they're little people. He had a chain around his neck, so he, right there, that's uh, you would get into the, you had the showbiz great Antonio, and he really made an impression on on the fans. So right, right there, you know, the attraction, something different for the Japanese public. That's not that that wasn't common. In the early 60s, wrestlers to them were very serious athletes. A lot of times, former sumo wrestlers like Ricky Dozan, like uh, like uh, Inoki, wrestle uh, trained under Ricky Dozan. He had Hiro Matsuda. All these people, not necessarily former sumo, but all with a very strong grappling background. And like you mentioned, Ray Antonio came 
into Japan with all this pomp and circumstance and his reputation preceding him winning all these uh, battle royals. And in Japan, they had him against like two against him, three against him, three on one, two on one matches. So, you know, they're selling him as as this just this indestructible force later on before meeting Antonio, uh, uh, Antonio Inoki. But with Ricky Dozan, what happened was it seems like he was a little hard to manage as a person. So back in the day, you had these two guys. One one guy was named – one wrestler's name was Bill Miller, and the other one was Ike Eakins. They were known as uh, legitimate tough guys that would would impose order amongst the boys if if they, if needed and seems like Antonio needed some kind of one like an attitude adjustment so they took it upon themselves to to rough him up uh seems like Ricky Dozan let this go because those are kind of like the internal rules in in the wrestling world something that you and I a situation that you and I would have maybe handled differently in the wrestling world and especially back then is different so uh, Ricky Dozan let it go as long as they didn't rough him up too much because he was going to face him eventually on, on, on one of the cards. You know, though that was the, the main attraction. So right there, uh, he was showing signs of, of perhaps difficult to work with or just dif- difficult to handle, kind of uh, just, just uh, something that the, the more traditionally – Traditional mentality of the wrestlers at the time were not too fond of. There's no word of how the match went with Ricky Dozan. I have not discovered that, or at least I'd not included in the article. But uh, from what I understand, it didn't go as badly as what happened later on with uh, Antonio Inoki. See, it's interesting. Uh, before our conversation in, in this portion, uh, the listeners would have heard uh, audio recording from Japan of um, the great Antonio's arrival in, in Japan. And you would have heard the the fanfare. You would have heard the crowds that were there. Yeah. So, so you had the, the presentation and they were setting himself up as this, as this real um, attraction, this real monster. Mm-hmm. And then, you have him come out uh, even before his matches. You know, he's like you said, he's got the chain on. He's being like led a to beast, the beast, right? Like, a, like this beast that they can barely contain. Or... Absolutely. And he's <laughs> he's throwing chairs and, and he's, you mm. know, attacking fans. You would see this portrayed later, you know, guys like um, like Kamala, too, or uh, Abdul, the butcher, the sheik mm-hmm. would be would mm-hmm. make. Uh, feats like this very familiar for the Japanese fans later in life, but this kind of all the genesis of this mm-hmm. kind of madman character in Japan starts with the great Antonio. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating because you have the situation where he's being brought in. He's already got kind of a, a big head, right? He comes <laughs> to Japan. He's got, he's got massive fanfare. He's, he's doing these feats of strength. There's, there's thousands of fans watching, He's at the arena. He's allowed to act like a, essentially a crazy person, which if you if you're being allowed this much rope, it's it's not hard to see why he kind of let himself get out of hand. And then it, you know, like you like you 
so greatly said, right, when you, in Japan, you can't really get away with that too much. And then they took matters into their own hands. And then they kind of had to straighten out his attitude a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to criticize him in a, in a vacuum if you're just presented with, you know, here's this guy who comes to Japan, he doesn't know the culture, and he just acts the way he wants to act, right, without factoring in all of these things that have happened previously to lead up to his behavior. And then then you have the Ricky Dozan fight, and then, you know, the aftermath of that is 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 almost, you know, he's in with all this fanfare, and he's kind of out with a whimper. Yeah, he he left, like, with his tail be between his legs and uh according to this was this is from uh scott teal's book it's a ricky dozen book where scott teal worked on it two other people also and it, it according to that a lot of people were there when he arrived in japan but when he left no one no one you know gave him farewell it's it's it was it was almost like um it was a really it was really kind of when I read that, I thought, wow, this, he kind of, he's not probably not going to be invited back to Japan, but, uh, but uh, that's, 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 that's what, that was his story of, of his early trip to Japan. And, uh, and, 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 and again, the old school wrestlers, they're not gonna, they only allow you to, to, to go over so much. I guess something was just like you've, you've mentioned before, something was lost in translation there, whether someone, told him to to act like that but maybe not you know keep it at a certain level but uh definitely bill miller or an Ike 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 uh Eakins didn't did not did not uh like that at all so you have the situation then where you know he like you said he he kind of heads back to canada tail between his legs he goes on to to uh stampede i think right after that and there's an interesting story about his time in Stampede that listeners would have heard earlier on in this program. But you also have now a situation where some 15 years later, now there's a new star in Japan. And as they kind of do in Japan, they look for the next big thing to kind of give the the big star in Japan uh, some more prestige, some more push. And more often than not, and we've seen it throughout the years, even covering this program of grapple with Canada, how many Canadian stars would go over there as the, the Gaijin heel, right. To, to battle the Japanese star, get them over, you know, guys like Kaniski, we, Abdullah, we talked about earlier on and on and on. The, the list is long and, uh, and storied, but one person on the list who you would think would never be back is the great Antonio. So maybe let's talk about now, what ended up happening with the great Antonio and uh, Antonio Nogi situation. And it's, it's important to note is that this was with Ricky Dozan, it was 69. And with Antonio Inoki, the match, a lot of your listeners will, will probably, or might be familiar with was in 1977. So we're several years ahead of when when he when he went to japan and and by this time the great antonio was not at all he wasn't he was never so well i won't say never if you see early pictures of him you see that he's cut he looks like like a lumberjack he looks it's, he's in shape it's actually night and day yeah 
that's that's a that's exactly right. You see him and he's just like this huge. Uh, well, the the video out there where you have the the comedian, I don't, you know, he calls himself a comedian, but he just he describes him as a troll. You know, he's he, he's making fun of his yellow tights and he's wearing these boots. He's great. Antonio is just more be uh, obese, morbidly obese, out of shape, but. The Japanese uh, commentators, they're selling this like there's this indestructible force that Antonio Inoki is going to have to face and he's going to have trouble with them. And they're hope hopefully he'll he'll be able to 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 defeat the great Antonio. They're they're talking about his indestructible belly, you know, that it looks like fat, but is actually very, very hard. And 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 uh, but the match quickly gets out of hand thanks to the great Antonio totally just no selling anything uh Antonio Inoki throws at him no selling but also almost like ignoring any any of Antonio Inoki's offense just uh and and he just one thing is disrespecting your opponent and the other thing is making the match just look terrible for the fans so he was that right there. It seems like that was good. That was a start of the, the, that was a fuse that lit the bomb for, for Antonio Inoki. And what really set him off was a cup, those chops behind his neck, just like just a, he just starts hitting Antonio Inoki in the back of the neck, just these stiff shots. And Antonio Inoki just lost it. And just op- starts open hand slapping uh, Antonio, great Antonio, and that's the beginning of the end. Now there's a couple of things and, and that we it just should... gets worse from there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, we, we should add a little bit of context to this too, because again, with the with the time lapse between Ricky Dozan, the match with Ricky Dozan, and the match with with Antonio Inoki. So he, he, earlier in Japan, he was, you know, weighing in, you know, just about 400 pounds. Now, like you said, now he's he's way out of shape. He's like he's like four, four sixty five, four seventy, somewhere around there. So even he, even maybe four eighty five. Uh, it's like just ballooned. Yes, yes he yeah. was he was almost a hundred pounds difference. So you have that. You have the age factor, but then you also have an interesting. Um, aspect where again he's brought into Japan and he's put in these battle royals where he's beating two or three guys every night consistently before he ends up meeting Inoki. So yeah, this is this is the uh, this is actually the rubber match between them. This is the rematch where Antonio defeated Inoki by a uh, disqualification, if, if, if right? Yes. And uh, and before that he had he was two against. Two on one matches, three on one matches, you know, but just putting this guy, making this guy look like this, this force that's going to meet uh, Antonio Inoki. So it's, and again, we, you know, it, it's a weird position to be in where, you know, you're, you're building this guy and you're kind of filling his head with, okay, so I guess I'm going to do what I've done, you know, for the previous 20 years to this. But he picked the wrong night to do it. And like you said, uh, the match kind of starts off rough and I've seen the match and we were talking a little bit off air before this and it's, it's hard to watch. And at the beginning of the program tonight, you would have heard 
some audio clips that I actually took from that Bill Barr segment. Um, a lot of the language was edited out. If you hear the full version, it's definitely not what I had uh, in the in the intro. But I wanted to kind of set up because this is the thing that most wrestling fans, most modern wrestling fans would know about about the great Antonio is this moment that we're going to talk about right now where, you know, he, great Antonio is, he's no selling. He starts clubbing for lack of a better term, Anoki over the head and the back of the neck. And then Anoki just has had enough. And uh, yeah, maybe let's take it from there. Well, again, the commentators are, are trying to sell the match and, and, and in the article, there's a translation straight it's it's a straight translation from japanese so it reads a little strange but it does add to the to the flavor and the and the and the character of the match but uh remember remember this was about six months a little bit or six to eight months after antonio inoki faced uh muhammad ali so this was a time when antonio inoki was starting to do his uh trying to prove that pro wrestling and and could be, it was a legitimate style of fighting and he was trying to go against people like, you know, with the Ali boxing, the great Antonio, this big, uh, strong man. So, so Antonio, uh, Inoki throughout the years, he'd go against mixed martial artists, you know, what, before we knew it as mixed martial arts, but he would get into these, kind of like shoot fights, uh, wrestling shoots, shoot wrestling matches with uh, legitimate athletes, sometimes attractions, sometimes real fighters trying to sell pro wrestling as legit for and for for a lack of term, you know, as something real. So the great Antonio falls into this this uh, timeline of Antonio Inoki trying to sell wrestling as something that should be respected just like boxing just like what we see now as mma karate taekwondo and all those combat sports this is from the squared circle life death and pro wrestling by david shoemaker and in the and this is where you get the the translation of the japanese commentary of the match and um, this is the part where it starts. Inoki is kicking Great Antonio's face. It seems like big damage to the Great Antonio. He just hit the Great Antonio's chin, and the left kick just hit bones around the stomach. Great Antonio's mouth is ripped and bleeding. Antonio's stomping broke Antonio's ear. The uh, Great Antonio cannot wake up. He has no energy left. Inoki's upper kick to Antonio's chin seemed like the critical hit. His face is now covered with his blood. And uh, and right before that, they start they 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 talk about his indestructible, just uh, his stomach. Great Antonio's gut looks loose and fat, but punching his body is just like punching a piece, a big piece of raw rubber wall, a big piece of raw rubber wall. That's literally how it was. In the book, Great Antonio seems to be headlocking Inoki without effort, but it is much stronger than you would think. 
I think that's great the way it was uh, translated. How they covered that again, one. Not pretty, not pretty to look at at the end. It was. Uh, I'm not sure why he's not covering his head towards the end. Um, yeah, if I'm getting kicked in the head, I'm I'm covering up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about. But um, and the manager, if if someone knows out there knows who the manager is, Great Antonio's manager, I'd like to know his name. Because he jumps in and tries to stop the uh, the beat down, but uh, the referee pushes him aside. So I'm, I'm not, either the either referee wanted it to continue, or or since that wasn't technically the finish, he didn't want any outside interference. But uh, he didn't let the he didn't let the manager help at all. So it's, in, you know, it's you know. interesting watching that part specifically because you know because Anoki was one of the owners or maybe he was actually the owner at that specific time of New Japan yeah so so you, you don't know maybe he told the ref hey you know back off True. or whatever right like in the ring and we didn't catch it because again it is kind of hard to make out on video but yeah you are right because the ref comes in and, and kind of pushes the manager out of the way and uh I mean, it you, seems like you, the manager does a little bit of a hard, half-hearted uh, attempt to to stop uh, Inoki from from continually con- continue to kicking him, but but still, it seemed like he was trying to stop it. But but the referee definitely definitely stopped that from happening. But it is it's it's uh it's uncomfortable to watch, and you yeah. and I have seen our fair share of, of wrestling over the years, and uh, you know we've both seen you know our our fair share of some screwy things that happen in the ring. You know, uh, the Don Eagle one I think would be one that we both we both have seen, and and it's just an odd an odd spectacle. But this is something where it's you you almost you know for as much as we we rightfully will criticize bill Barr's, you know um <laughs> dissertation of the match he did have mm-hmm. one part right where it was almost attempted murder like he he would have killed him in the ring it didn't look good it's one of it, it's it's one of those things where it's it's almost like you know now everyone has the camera and 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 people there's sometimes these uh incidences where people decide to use violence instead of just walking away or or or, or trying to find another solution and that's what it looked like it looked just looked like someone was about to you know just just taking advantage of someone who couldn't defend himself any anymore that's how it looked and at that point the great antonio uh i guess i guess you know i respect everyone who goes it gets into the ring at any point but he had no business to be in 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 the wrestling ring anymore he just whether it was a work or even or even uh in this in this case a legit um it was a shoot at the end no doubt about it he didn't see that coming yeah and and that was essentially the end of his career because i don't think from everything that i've been able to tell he never stepped foot in a ring after that and i mean he I was didn't see, yeah mm-hmm. he was still it's it's interesting because his his wrestling career comes to an end his strongman career for all intents and purposes, was winding down at that point. Although he did, he did still pull buses, and he was doing some rather interesting things. And he was still kind of a pop culture icon. Uh, 
there would there has been many many documented times that he was on uh especially uh french canadian television many specials with him singing uh doing kind of variety shows or, or things like that i know he was on uh the tonight show as well and this would have been um before the Inoki incident specifically i believe but regardless of that his his entertainment value was still there not as big but it was the end of his wrestling career thing is remember this was this was before the internet so for people in france to have known about that match it was almost impossible so he kept on appearing on on variety shows you know i've seen footage of him in in on variety shows in 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 montreal i'm assuming because everyone's speaking french so he was he was he into the 80s he was still this is kind of like a an eccentric celebrity in that area so he still had fame and he and he appeared in a couple of movies some commercials but uh you know eventually he just kind of he became destitute right he just started living he his his, his favorite hangout was like a dunkin donuts he was a uh, outside uh, at the bench on the bench in the on the on the front of the on the of the restaurant and uh he'd uh he'd have these postcards of him pulling those those buses that got him into the guinness world record book which was from the around 52 right the the from the the world record he did set on these shows he would always say that he had he was the owner of five guinness world records he would say five five with the the little french i understood i understand but i can only find that he was he's he's got two world records from the pulling the buses and then uh, pulling some trains 400 and some ton trains in montreal but he'd use his he'd 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 do this uh thing where he'd tie his hair up and he would have people doing tug of war on each side and 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 i've seen i've seen footage and it was on johnny carson i think there was like i could count like eight people on each side trying to trying to pull (laughs) pull him either which way and they could and and he was he was holding his own so even at that later stage in life which was uh mid 70s to early 80s he he still had strength you know he he would still very impressive you know for for a person that age so he had his hair remember he he played golf he would tie his hair his he had long hair at some point and he would braid it and 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 put these uh iron like these metal rings and make it into like a, a, a like a golf club and play golf with his hair which it seemed like maybe he never washed. Very strange stuff, man. And it all it it's it's such an odd thing, right? Because nobody's really ever explored his later years because he was just such an oddity at that point. You know, we're, we're talking this is past the past the variety show time. Now we're talking, uh, you know, the '90s, uh, right up to essentially his death, and. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was visible in Montreal, but it, it's almost like he was he was kind of like he was almost like the ghost of Montreal at that point. Right. Everybody kind of knew he was there. He was always kind of around and he was always doing these 
spectacles. And like you said, he would always have his his big garbage bag of, of memorabilia. And, you know, he's trying to peddle things, sell things, because, like you said, he was at that point destitute. But it's for as for as visible as he was in Montreal in that decade before he passed, there's really there's no rhyme or reason of of what was happening with him and and nobody really seemed to take the time to understand what was happening with him so it's it's almost like a uh it's like a lost decade of you know he's he's on these variety shows and then he's it's a blank space and he's passed on it's it's a very strange i guess chronology of of his life it's 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 it's, it seems like a person that in his later years, like he's lost in time and excuse me. And maybe his, his past feast feats of strength and, and who he was, it, it almost maybe blended into some kind of, of lost war where, where, where if you weren't there, because remember he was, his peak was like in the fifties and sixties. So by the nineties, early two thousands, a lot of people who saw those, those those events weren't there to 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 recount them to anyone so he was i guess he was still living off his past where people say that if if you would take the time to to speak with them he'd pull out some of his postcards and talk to you but uh there is footage of him in the uh in the subway and i've included that in the article i mean it's real real it's quirky interesting but at the same time sad where where he at some point the great antonio was a celebrity and he was a name and i'm sure he made decent money but then basically just living living in a street like that and destitute and 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 practically homeless is is a real sad way that uh that he that he ended ended his uh you know eventually until he he died where I read that he had just bought lottery tickets. It seems like he, he, he really enjoyed buying those scratch, those scratch off lottery tickets. And, and he had a heart attack a little bit after that. See, it's weird because we're, we're in the 20th anniversary of his passing away. And, you know, when September rolls around, when it, when the day happens, there's going to be, you know, uh, articles that are going to be you know reference this one in particular right but then what that would be nice <laughs> but you and i both know what what the biggest story that wrestling fans are going to be talking about is they're going to be rehashing the Inoki one right so that you know it's it's kind of a, a reason to do a program like this on kind of the anniversary because there's more to Inoki or more to the great antonio than just just the the one thing that the majority of wrestling fans know see when i started when i started that article i remember sure that that was that was the main focus of most of the information out there but when you start digging when you start researching and 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 reading more and talking to people there's a there was a lot more to the great antonio than the way his wrestling career ended back in 1977 and uh, I really do encourage people to go and read that article. It's it's a you know you start from the beginning and you build up into that into that incident with the with uh, Antonio Inoki, but it also talks about what happened later later on 
There was a book written written about him. There is a documentary out there, but I can't speak French. It would be really nice to know what 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 they're talking about. I'm sure they they go into more in depth about uh, his story. But uh, the great Antonio, from what I have seen in footage everywhere, just this happy-go-lucky, eccentric showman who happened to fall into the world of pro wrestling and had some success, became somewhat of a name, but his career just uh, fell off the cliff after 1977, and, and, and I don't blame him because that was not a pretty incident. And But there's a lot of mystery behind his life and 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 i think in a way that's what we like about wrestling where a lot these these stories where 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 does the where does the truth and where does the uh fiction start and 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 where you know it's always something like in the middle right it's documented that he pulled those those buses and and the trains but then these stories get just bigger and bigger as as time goes by right it's just a unique character that i guess i think pro wrestling was lucky to have him and he will be remembered Uh, that's what we want we want we want them to be remembered antonio barikovich Antonio Beresevich Antoine Berekovich The Great Antonio Le Grand Antonio He almost has as many pronunciations of his name as he does of origin stories of where he came from. Antonio Beresevich from Italy Antonio Berekovich from Yugoslavia Antoine Beresevich from Russia even in this episode today, you've heard three different origin stories. One presented by author and historian Greg Oliver. One heard by Fireside Canada's David Williams. And one researched into by Javier Oist. At the beginning of the program, I had said that Antonio Beresevich's story is one of the most complicated in terms of researching that I've ever attempted on Grappling with Canada. Now you can understand why. I also said at the beginning of the program that I was going to get to the actual story of Antonio Beresevich, which I will. What you'll hear in the next section is my extrapolation of all of the evidence that I've been able to verify, cross-reference, and extrapolate from the different stories and biographical information of the great Antonio. It is, in my opinion as close as anybody more than likely will get or has gotten to the full origin story of the great Antonio. But before we get there, I do want to play one more piece of classic audio. Now we've talked throughout this story of the great Antonio being a social uh, touchstone of sorts from appearances on many variety shows, including the Johnny Carson show. So, what I'm going to present to you is that clip in its entirety, the audio version 
of the Great Antonio's appearance on the Johnny Carson show. And on the other side, we find out who the Great Antonio really was and where he came from. Please enjoy. Great Antonio. Canada. <laughs> have special what? Boots. Special boots? You like you might my boots? Yeah. Where are your boots? Over there, some place around over there, look. Size 28. These are your boots? <laughs> Size 28. You have to have these special made. These are not aren't off the rack, are they? No. <laughs> They cost $250. A pair. A pair. Well, that's a big boot. <laughs> Can I get into us? Sure, sure. Sure, I'll try a boot. I don't believe this. Huh? Now that's a little strange. You could jump in here and have a house party. If you go downtown Broadway. Yeah, where are you from originally, Antonio? I from Montreal. Montreal? Yeah, I born in Russia. Born in Russia. Yeah. When did you first know you were real strong? As a youngster, when you were growing yeah, up? Yeah, young. I start fighting. I boxing for six years. Boxing. After coming too slow for boxing, start make a demonstration of strength and wrestling. Wrestling? Yeah, and demonstration of strength. Demonstrations of, of strength. And uh, all the time, start that, uh, go around the wall and make a demonstration all around the wall. Mm -hmm. Never sit in the wall. Yeah, what size uh, a suit do you wear? Oh, it's 90. A 90? Can <laughs> you imagine going in? Would you like to see something in a 90? Look at my hat over there. That's your hat? Yeah. I buy Houston, Texas. So it does. Frontier misfit. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, you're you're a good-sized man, Antonio. Yes, sir. And uh, I understand in Russia you did something once. Somebody told me something about bears. Yeah, I killed 25 bears in the woods. You, I wrestled the bear too. You wrestled the bear. I wrestled the bear in the woods. And killed him. I strangled them. the bear with my reversal arm. I strangled the bear. Isn't that dangerous? Yeah. I like to bring the bear in the studio. 650-pound bear. And kill him? That'd be a first, wouldn't it? Right here in our stage, he's going to kill a bear. Dead. Really, really dead. That'd be the first. Sullivan would go out of his mind if he saw that. You want to, you want to drag the bear off? Get him out of here. On our stage, the Grand Trail. What would you like me to do, Great? No, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here. Well, you go in the front, over there. Want me in the front? Yeah. Pull, pull him up now. Pull the rope, over there. Pull, pull the rope tight. Wait. Pull. 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 All right. Pull. All right. Pull. Are we ready? Don't go yet. Pull it up. All right. Okay, Sit up. Now. No. Wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> now, pull over there. Pull everybody, huh? Pull everybody hard. Pull. 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 Pull
The biographical background and information that I have collected about the Great Antonio has been cross-referenced and, from all accounts, verified by some of the great staff, and I need to give them a shout-out, at the McCord Stewart Museum in Montreal. Specifically, I need to really give a hat tip to Heather McNabb, who was the uh, English consultant who helped me uh, with some information in regards to this. For those in the Montreal area and for those traveling to Montreal, uh, the McCord Stewart Museum has a massive collection on the Great Antonio, which I'm going to get into in a little bit here. And they are looking for funds to put towards exploring the rest of the story about the Great Antonio. They have a tremendous amount of information. They're just looking for the funds to complete it. So if you are in the Montreal area, and are a fan of the Great Antonio, I would highly encourage you to donate to the McCord Stewart Museum so they can continue their tremendous research and uh, give everybody a little more about the Great Antonio. Now, here we go. Anton Beresievich was born October 10th, 1925. He was the son of Joseph Beresievich and Rosary Budnich. Anton was born in Lusingrad, which nowadays is actually known as Losinj. This is the island of Losinj in Croatia. Now we're going to get into a little bit of a world history for everybody right now. Between 1918 and 1943, this region was actually annexed by uh, Italy. So this would explain why he would become to be known as Antonio in his mother's tongue. Now this island is now technically Croatian territory. So that's why almost immediately some of the historical background of the great Antonio is muddled. Some would call him Italian. His mother was. Some would call him Croatian because where he was born... Lusingrad is now Losinj. So both can be right at the same time. Anton, now known as Antonio, immigrated to Canada in 1945 when the island joined Croatia in the Federation of Yugoslavia and when the region was experiencing a massive exodus of populations of Italians. Arriving at the age of 20, he first worked as a stevedore at the port of Montreal where he was unloading ships. 
Now, this comes from the museum archives. At that time, and despite the death of Louis Sierra in 1912, a certain interest in the forest persisted in Quebec, maintained in particular by Philip Fournier, Eugene Keo, and Victor Delamar. These were strong men in the French-Canadian past. We would have discussed many of that in my conversation with David Williams from Fireside Canada. Aware of his unusual abilities, the great Antonio takes quickly in parts of various matches between strongmen and appeared from 1952 in the Guinness Book of World Records for pulling a train on the Montreal Railway line, totaling a weight of 433 tons over a distance of 19.8 meters. As well, in 1956, he drug a Chevrolet attached to his own hair, and in 1960, he set a new record by pulling four city buses and their passengers on St. Catherine Street in Montreal. Again, this comes from the McCord Museum. Quote, His many feats of strength made his reputation, and Beresievich did not hesitate to call himself the strongest man in the world. At a time when wrestlers were not yet consuming steroids, he demonstrated his toughness by carrying men on his shoulders, fighting bears, lifting trucks, pulling elephants, and lifting horses. His most well-known time of glory was between 1960 and 1970s. That's also when he began his professional wrestling career, as we alluded to earlier on in the program. It is also interesting that he made a few appearances in the United States, both in terms of professional wrestling and on popular shows like the aforementioned Johnny Carson show, The Ed Sullivan Show, and Real People. His wife, Janine LaRue, whom he married in 1966, followed him wherever he went and was always present at his shows. She was a businesswoman and later played the role of his manager and organized his tours. Now, further to his late-night television career, his wrestling career, and his career as a strongman, he was also in a great deal of movies. Uh, he had international success in La Guerre des Feux in 1981, which was a French-Canadian film. He was also featured in Chocolate Cake in 1983. He was in The Abominable Snowman in 1996. However, in the 1990s, Beresievich gradually fell into oblivion. Uh, he ended up living by himself in a small apartment on Beaumier Road in Montreal. And that's kind of where the story that you heard at the beginning of the program kind of picks up, detailing the after-effects of the great Antonio's presence and career. Now, earlier on in the program, you would have heard about the fabled garbage bag that the great Antonio would carry around with him, containing all of his personal ref relics. This still exists today, and it is at the Montreal Museum. Now, that donation was offered to the museum by illustrator and author Elise Gravel, who had the opportunity to meet the great Antonio in Montreal in the years uh, 1990s and buy some autographed photos. She was able to procure his magnificent garbage bag of items, if you will. And she was also approached by Janine Peltier, who sold her the documentary or the rest of the documentarian images and information 
that Elise ended up donating to the program, or donating to the museum, I should say. Janine Pelletier is the sister of Pierre Pelletier, who was a former wrestler who did tours with Beresievich in the early 1970s, and whom had picked up newspapers and papers of all kinds and photos kept in the apartment of the great Antonio after his passing. Now, what's fascinating is that it really does offer an overview of his personal life from 1959 until his passing in 2003. Included in this massive library of information of the great Antonio, there is correspondences, he has employment contracts, business cards, two Canadian passports, which is interesting, draft scripts, compositions, notes, as well as multiple wrestling show programs. From these programs, they were able to extrapolate that he shared the ring with greats such as Pat O'Connor, uh, Mad Dog Vachon, Buddy Rogers, Edouard Carpentier, and many, many more. In fact, it should be noted that he rubbed shoulders with almost all of the greats between 1959 and 1961, more specifically. A lot of press clippings were extremely rich in information. They also show that the great Antonio was an expert in public relations, since this fantastic character liked to talk about himself and promote his exploits, something that we discussed earlier on in the program. During his four decades career, he also managed to infiltrate the international jet set scene. We see in several of the articles in this collection, the donation to the museum, that he was in the company of some of the biggest stars over that four decade career. Uh, he had Multiple pictures with Michael Jackson and his brother Jermaine, with Clint Eastwood, Sophia Loren, Luciano Pavarotti, Liza Minnelli, Alain Delon, Jean-Paul Bellamont, and Tom Jones, amongst many, many more, including former President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Now, what's also extremely fascinating is included in this collection are Anton or the great Antonio's, medical records. Due to limitations in privacy in Canada, these medical records will not be available to the public until 2033, at by which time it'll be legally permissible to allow them to be viewed by the public. But I am very much interested to see what those medical records have to say about the health and well-being of the great Antonio. Again, here's a man who went a substantive change in character from how we looked early on as a strapping young man to the uh, orange behemoth that we saw later described in the lyrics of the band Meilleur. It's a fascinating look and something that I'm really looking forward to uh, witnessing for myself in 2033 when these records will be legally able to be released. Once again, there's many more interesting facets and tidbits that are being slowly uncovered by the museum. So once again, if you are in the financial shape and are interested and you live in the Montreal area and are able to uh, donate to the um, Accord Museum, specifically towards the preservation and research of the Great Antonio exhibit, I would very much uh, suggest that you look into it and see what there is. Because, to be honest, we don't often find in professional wrestling somebody who has been able to encapsulate 
their entire career to keep tabs essentially of what they've been up to over the decades and instead of what has been come to pass as people kind of talking about the great Antonio story without the substance now we have the actual substance and the resources are just required to dig into it and really fully explore the story of the great Antonio I know for myself I'm personally looking forward to 2033 when those records will be fully available the great Antonio wrestling's great mystery is finally on the verge of being completely solved and I for one am thrilled that on the anniversary of his passing that being this coming September 2023 that we were able to do this program and shed some light on one of the more fascinating characters from not only French Canadian lore but professional wrestling lore and Canadian history. This has been your episode of Grappling with Canada. This episode was written, researched, produced, and recorded by me, Andy the Taxman. You can find Grappling with Canada on all major podcasting platforms. Please make sure to rate and review five stars where available. You can also find Grappling with Canada on all major social media platforms. Just search Grappling with Canada on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you are willing and able to financially support Grappling with Canada, you can find links to PayPal and buymeacoffee.com on the Linktree link in today's show notes. You can also find links to the Grappling with Canada merchandise store in the show notes for today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family. This is Andy the Taxman saying... Thank you very much for supporting and listening to this program. Take care of yourselves and each other.